Welcome to our Holden Village podcast. For over 50 years now, Holden Village has traveled a rich history of faith that has transformed a copper mining town into a vibrant place of education, programming, and worship. Holden has sought to welcome all who seek contemplation and community in the remote wilderness of the beautiful Cascade Mountains. We continue to invite people of all ages to come alongside our rhythms, which inspire and equip travelers for a sustainable life of faith outside the village. And we continue to listen and reflect on our story and history and seek to discover our place in God's creative mission in our world. Our podcasts are a way of sharing our conversations with our teaching faculty around reformation, the reforming of our relationships with the earth with each other, and with a divine. Let's tune in and join the conversation. Hi, my name is Jeff Kersengrip. I'm a professor of communication at the University of Portland, and I'm here to talk about um, dialogue as though it were a real thing. Uh, we talk about dialogue so often in the culture as this meaningless word like leadership or success, that of course we know it's a good thing. But as soon as we hear the word, we're often intimidated and think, well, pff, what actually is that thing? So I've been here this week teaching a lot about communicating across barriers, meaning communicating with people that I think are different than me for some reason. Whether they are or not, I respond to you as though you're different from me. And, you know, that tricks my brain a little bit. I'm tempted to see you as more threat than ally. I'm tempted to see you as something alien rather than familiar. And um, I'm thinking that what needs to happen is we need to get better at being able to do dialogue with each other. And uh, I'm borrowing for this from two sources. One, the most foundational source, is Martin Buber, who talks a lot about the fact that we it each other more than we need to, and we could thou each other more than we do. So uh, he's got a, a seminal work called I and Thou, which is a really good skinny little read. Uh, to take some time. But I'm also borrowing from an interpersonal communication scholar named John Stewart, John R. Stewart, who's taken uh, Buber's humanistic ideas and run them through the filter of social science in interpersonal communication to try and figure out, well, what actually is dialogue if it wanted to be something that you actually did instead of just something you aspired to? So all I'm going to talk about today is just to think about um, what does it mean to be in dialogue with another person? And is it possible to cue that? You can't make it happen, of course, but is it possible to make it more rather than less likely that you're going to wind up in dialogue? One of the best ways to think about this on our way into talking about it is to think about uh, conversations that you've been a part of that went way better than they had any right to. Uh, maybe somebody's approached you and they're really pissed off at you or something you've written or something like that. And the conversation could very easily just follow that script. And instead, something happens in the choices that the two people make with each other, and it turns into being not just a standard conversation, but a, like a super conversation. You learn things. Um, it's even transformational a bit. And it seems like it almost takes that level of investment by one or both parties to get to that point. Otherwise, you're just going to have a standard, hi, how are you, conversation. So sometimes they come from this place of, of real fraughtness. So that's one good thought exercise to try for yourself now, is to think about when was I recently in a conversation that went, or an interaction even, that just went way better than it had any right to, or than I thought it would. Maybe I thought I was going to have not a bad encounter, but just a neutral one. And instead I had one that just left me feeling lovely. 
and competent and connected with the other person. So when you're thinking about those, keep that in mind as I talk just more abstractly here for three or four minutes about what it means to be in dialogue, and then circle back to that encounter and see whether this helps explain what you actually experienced in that encounter. So when Stewart talks about dialogue, and in fact when Buber talked about dialogue, it was composed of two different things together. One is the notion of holding your ground. So when I'm in dialogue with you, I'm not being pushed over. I think sometimes we think about dialogue as being a wishy-washy, touchy-feely, anything you say is okay. Oh, we're having a nice dialogue. When in fact dialogue is you are honoring your own spine and you are thinking about it as, uh, no, this is where I am, this is who I am. And that you're reflecting that authentically. You're not especially cloaking it. You're not trying to make it into something else. But you truly are holding your ground in the interaction. That part's pretty easy, especially for Americans. U.S. Americans, we're schooled to hold our ground. A lot of our identity comes from being able to uh, be our own independent person, kind of impervious to others, which hurts us in doing the other half of dialogue. So we're good at the holding our ground part. But dialogue simultaneously involves the ability of letting the other person happen to me in interaction. And I'm not as wired to do this as a man raised in America, especially. Those things aren't seen as very manly, right, to let another person happen to you. And yet I found in in, uh, professional and personal relationships, both my own and in the research, the essence of what leads to successful relationships in life is exactly that ability. That you don't talk your way into your best relationships, you listen your way into your best relationships. And that includes your best workplace relationships. That includes your best casual relationships. So to be in dialogue means to do both of these things simultaneously. I'm with you and I'm holding my ground. I'm with you and I'm letting you happen to me. And if those things feel contradictory, they are. Uh, They're held in tension all the time. Um, But what happens when I come into an encounter and I decide to try and see you Uh, in your complexity rather than try and reduce you to, let's say, a single story of you or one characteristic of you. But that I decide to see you as somebody who's making choices rather than somebody who's, say, going through a phase that I went through. Oh, you're just going through a phase. We all love to hear that. Ha. So I, I decide to treat you as though you're somebody who's unique. You maybe resemble other people I know, but why should I presume that you are like other people I know? How, what does it mean to approach you as though you are a unique person, to be open to that sort of thing? So there's several characteristics about people that I can have in mind for you when I'm engaging you. One thing that's helped me is to catch myself TUI, which is thinking under the influence of dominant societal assumptions about people. If I only know one or two things about you, maybe I'm really distracted by the fact that you're wearing a headscarf, and that's kind of all I see. Uh, And then I respond to a headscarf person instead of to the full human who's inside that thing for whom that headscarf might just be incidental. It probably isn't. You know, it probably matters a lot. But um, one of the ways I find that helps me engage people as unique individuals is to just keep walking alongside my own assumptions about the other person and think, am I reducing them to something that they would not reduce themselves to? Is there more to them that I could find out? Is there more to them that I could even assume? And often that's a great way into the letting the other person happen to me part. Because it leads logically to questions about things. It leads logically to check-ins. It leads logically to paraphrasing the other person, especially if you're arguing with them. My sweet spouse is great at this. Um, that we can be having a pretty good argument about something, and 
um, she and sometimes I, is really good at saying, okay, so it sounds like you're really upset about this, and you'd like that to be different, and you want to understand this better. Is that right? And I think, oh, I love you. You know, when you get somebody who says, uh, in effect, I'm listening to you, that that changes the nature of the encounter. And I guess that's the last thing I'd say about dialogue is if I'm being, letting the other person happen to me and I am holding my ground with you, that means that I'm both trying to represent myself in my complexity in the encounter, but I'm also doing things that let you know I'm trying to see you that way too. And there's a norm called the reciprocity norm in communication that says when somebody does something to me, I feel a little bit of social force, a little bit of, I feel a little bit compelled to do the same to you. I don't have to honor that compellingness, but I really often do. And so if I just keep offering that kind of thing in interaction, even if the other person's first couple attempts don't necessarily go there, you often can get to a place of dialogue with somebody who didn't know they'd be in dialogue that day. And it doesn't work with everybody. You can't be in dialogue if you're the only one doing it. But that, to me, has been the key to a lot of really productive communicating across difference. And I think the best thing it's led to for me, um, once I have some confidence in my ability to actually be in dialogue with other people, especially people who seem really different from me, is to trust these abilities and to trust these sort of prompts. That I'm going to go into the encounter, I'm going to feel like asking questions. Some of those questions will be welcome, and I'll have to listen pretty hard to figure out which ones the other person actually might want to answer and which ones they should feel no obligation to answer. And how do I convey even my awareness of that with the other person? But to come into every new encounter, realizing that there are things I can probably do with communication that are going to make the encounter more likely successful than unsuccessful. And that makes me more rather than less likely to walk toward difference rather than to walk away from it. So to think about dialogue is something that's not this squishy, touchy-feely term, but it's actually a skill. It's something you can develop that has some attitude attached to it, and it's one of those skills that once you talk yourself into doing it, you are transformed by it as well. You can trick your body into an attitude of curiosity. You can trick your autonomic nervous system from an attitude of defense into one of curiosity by simply asking a question instead of being defensive in response to something somebody else asks you. Treat it as a question. Ask a question where maybe you're receiving critique. Ask them about it. Find out even more about it. And you'll find suddenly you are genuinely curious about their critique in a way that you're not when you respond defensively. And that's the doorway to dialogue, is to be thinking about conversations as achievable, complicated social phenomena. But they're skills driven, and these are skills you're not born with. You learn them can do them on purpose. So it's a matter of holding your ground, it's a matter of letting the other person happen to you, and it's a matter of doing that over and over until you trust your own ability to do it, and you start moving through the world differently. You become a little less like the leaf and a little more like the wind in your encounters, especially at the interpersonal level. Thanks for joining us for another Holden Village podcast. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information, or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.